this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. It's Pack Your Knives, I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haverstrow. Tom, it's the final four of Top Chef. Cue like college students in rugby shirts behind the basket playing weird horned instruments and brass. And this is it. This is the final four for one of the craziest parody, unpredictable, awesome seasons of Top Chef. Yeah, the final four, it feels weird not having Bruce or Chris or Fati here in the final four, but that's what's so great about this season is these are all really strong competitors. And you know what? Um, I still don't know who's my super favorite, but man, it is so hard to pick a favorite this season. Yeah. We, we did a uniquely terrible job at predicting the outcome of this season. You and I, what we drafted at the very, before the first episode, we drafted the field like fantasy basketball or fantasy baseball or fantasy football. And we, I mean, how bad did we do, Tom? We, we did super bad. I actually ran the numbers on this. There is a, a slightly negative correlation to where, where we picked contestants and how many points they ended up having in the, in the competition. So, so basically, if you put a pet turtle on a floor and put like 18 cards with chef's names and just said, go pick to the turtle, it would have done – the average turtle would have done better than I. Yeah, slightly wanted. better than what we did, um, because we were barely, barely uh, above random, um, and it was in the negative. So the the higher we chose them, the fewer points they got, which is embarrassing, Kevin. It's embarrassing. So we watched one episode, and I felt pretty good. Oh, we did watch one episode, right? We did watch one episode. I mean, that's how bad we were. I'm never going to make fun of an of an NBA general manager ever again. So to to remind people, we drafted um, one through eighteen, and that included the Last Chance Kitchen folks, and we drafted Tyler first. Then two, Fati, Bruce, Claudette, and then we get someone who made it to the final four, Joe Flan. That's crazy. It's very funny. In my in my episode one notes, I have a little parenthesis by Joe Flam as non-mustache. <laughs> yes. Because we will be having Joe Sasto, the Joe with a mustache, on very briefly. We're gonna we're gonna be speaking to him shortly. So hang in. Yes, stay tuned for that. And then we drafted Chris, then Joe Sasto, Rahelio Tanya, Brother Luck, Adrian, another finalist. Kwame, Laura, Leanne, and then Carrie at 16 out of 18 picks. She, I don't know who, who the equivalent is of Carrie. We should have discussed this before the show, but Carrie makes it to the final four, and she was the third to last pick. We picked a couple. She's like Isaiah Thomas at number six. That's exactly right. Isaiah Thomas, um, 
I, uh, I mean, Manu was like a second round pick. I mean, obviously you can go through Draymond, Carlos Boozer. There have been some very productive second round picks um, who have turned out to have wonderful careers. But uh, let's get to the show. This was uh, this was the final four. They're now um, this is Colorado. And so uh, rightly so Rocky Mountain Oysters, which another one I've been waiting. I've been waiting for the marijuana challenge, which hasn't materialized. And I've been waiting for the Rocky Mountain Oyster Challenge or the game meet. Uh, well, they did a little game meet. Uh, and, and so basically the, the chefs, the quick fire is Rocky Mountain Oysters two ways. Pretty cut and dry in that respect. Um, Rocky Mountain Oysters, for those who do not, do not know, are the testicles of the oxen. Am I, am I yeah. correct there? Is an oxen a cow? Yes, right? Or is a cow an oxen? I just like saying oxen. It, sounds, it reminds me of like Bible class um, growing up in like an Orthodox Jewish day school. It was like oxen is how they referred to the cow. They're bull testicles. They're bull nuts. And man, did they have fun with the, with the nut puns on this one. It was great. And uh, they all did them two ways and, and, and uh, to form each of the chefs chose fried Rocky Mountain oysters, which is kind of a no-brainer as one of the ways. Uh, and then they kind of just went to work. Carrie decided she'd do a pate, which I thought was very ballsy. Nice. Joe Sasto was going to braise his second pair or, or, or second serving uh, in brown butter. Uh, did a little nice little radish garnish up top. Adrian does a dashi, which which was so exciting to me because I've become, as you know, I am, though she is not represented on Team Kevin in the fantasy draft, I have, I have adopted Adrian. I, I have a, um, and I, I probably should have traded for her given my level of enthusiasm. But, but she goes with a dashi, which is kind of brilliant because like dashi is traditionally made with kelp and bonito flakes. It's a very, you know, very clean Japanese broth, right? And so she does it with those traditional components, and then she adds laogan ma, which is a Chinese condiment, which is kind of it's got a it's got a little picture of a Chinese grandma, and you see it in the in the Asian grocery stores where I do occasional grocery shopping and they it's like a Chinese grandma on, on the on the a portrait on the on the thing and it, it's basically a, it's a chili sauce it is a Chinese chili sauce and uh, in fact she in and she presents it and uh and Padma says very clever um so she she somehow creates a dashi sauce out of uh, Rocky Mountain oysters. I am I'm swooning in admiration because yes. I, I just have loved watching Adrian's trajectory. Uh, and then Joe Flam comes in uh, with a, with a puree over white bean and tomato sauce. And and actually Joe Sasto and Joe Flam essentially made very similar. Same dishes. name, same same dishes. They, they're twins. They're basically twins. And I thought Adrian it was one of those things. That Adrian made her dish where I was like, there's definitely more than a half hour on the clock. Like there's no way Adrian's dish could have come out in 30 minutes. It's crazy. We've been told by our best intel these these chefs actually do that. This is to me, in some ways, quick fires to me are even more impressive than the regulation elimination tournament, just because of the constraints of time. They don't really know what's happened until like right before. Like, as I, as an amateur home chef, I, I'm thinking about like a meal three days in advance. Like I treat it like the finale every time, and their ability just to kind of turn and and just turn these dishes in like half an hour, which takes it's about the amount of time I need to peel an onion basically and we're gonna have joe stash on the show uh later this episode and i'm gonna definitely ask him is was he surprised at how long it took him to win his first quickfire challenge because this episode congratulations joe you finally got your first quickfire i thought it was an upset over over adrian yeah no it was a nice little he did he did a cornflake breading on the Rocky Mountain Oyster, does a white bean, bean puree. It was actually very funny because there's this moment where I was like, hey, Joe, what are you doing? You know, and they're, they're kind of – basically the show has to create narrative while these chefs are cooking, which isn't kind of fundamentally exciting television. So they always tape the conversations like, what are you making? I'm making <laughs> – you know, and he said, you know, over a white bean puree. And then Joe non-mustache, Joe Flam says, me too. And I actually thought it was a, it was a joke, but indeed they both did the exact same dish. Um, Adrian uh, came in second. We, we can only discern because there were two unfavorites and two favorites. And uh, Adrian's dashi came in second. But I, I'm just so, kind of so utterly impressed with it. Um, and then uh, Carrie had some vegetables to kind of lighten it up. But uh, the pate was kind of livery. And Joe Flam didn't, decided not to kind of not to cook his Rocky Mountain oyster before he fried it. And I think uh, the, the deal is you kind of want to maybe, but I, I don't know how to ask Joe, but like you'd want to like boil it in salt water just to kind of soften it up and then mm. fry it probably is my guess. But you don't have a hell of a lot of time because it's quick no. fire. I, I, I don't like the uh, the texture of, 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 a, of a really tough Rocky Mountain oyster. Like here's my thing about Rocky Mountain oysters. 
I feel like everyone just fries the shit out of it because they don't like the taste. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think basically there's an understanding if you're going to eat weird food that like if you just deep fry, you can deep fry anything like the tarantula. I, I think from earlier in the season or last season, I can't even remember. Uh, but but if, if you yeah. have a weird food, if you if you can you can basically deep fry just about anything and, and enjoy it. Um, where are you on organ meats in general and like awful and and all those things? Oh, I'm good. I'm good on organ meats, as in like I totally dig it. Um, I'm in on hearts, uh, tripe. Um, what other interesting ones? Like I I do like like Joe Sasto mentioned sweetbreads. Like I'm good with that. But the Rocky Mountain Oysters, I had them at Soul Gastro Lounge here in uh, in Charlotte, which is a really top pick here in Charlotte. If you're on the road, check out Soul Gastro Lounge in Plaza Midwood, right around the corner from where I live. It, they have Rocky Mountain Oysters, and they fry the shit out of them too. And I, it, it just occurred to me is like, what food has the highest fry rate? Uh, I think question. Rocky Mountain Oysters is up there, right? I mean, what what what, what do we what do we basically eat fried that we eat no other way? I'm trying to think like what what uh, I think it's got to be Rocky Mountain oysters. It's up there. So I, I don't know if that's a testament to the texture of it. And man, did I cringe. I don't know about you, Kevin, but I cringed when Carrie put the, the yeah, testicles that, that to was the grinder. I did not need <laughs> on a Thursday night. But uh, yeah, Carrie, Carrie ground her Rocky Mountain oysters to kind of create the pate, uh, yeah. which was just a visual that was very aggressive. And yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of understood. So, so Sasto comes out of there and, and it's interesting that kind of the takeaway was, and it was a very interesting setup. And I don't know if you noticed this, but like, so Sasto with, with, with some bravado kind of suggested, Hey, Adrian's right behind me, kind of declared himself the favorite going into the final turn, which mm-hmm. I, I, I can't really contest. I mean, I think we, you and I have been saying for the better part of six weeks or so that he's sort of emerged as the kind of the morning odds, the morning line favorite. Uh, kind of headed toward the finale, but but kind of declared you know that, that Adrian was kind of right behind him, and and I, I, there is are we seeing some separation here coming out of that that quick fire? We, we, we sort of and, I, and as I said, the kind of the technical chefs of Joe Sasto and Adrian kind of mo- nudging ahead. Yeah, I think I think you got to say that Joe Sasto is the favorite because I think uh, based on pure points, he is the favorite um, coming into this episode. He had 86 points, and Carrie was right behind him at 84 points under our system, which rewards quick fire wins, uh, elimination challenges, and, and debits. If you don't finish in the top, uh, or if you finish in the bottom three, you're going to be debited some points. So Joe Sasto was and Carrie were two front runners, head and shoulders above the rest. And Joe Flame, you know, he was out of the competition. He came quickly back in. So I don't think it's too too aggressive to say Joe Sasto was in the lead, but to say that Adrian was coming for me um, as if Carrie wasn't there, I think we've felt all season long that I don't I don't think Joe Sasto really sees Carrie as an equal um, just by his commentary. We can ask him about that. Even through a little shade if she's not going to put him on toast, but, but um, do we know if Quick – because one of the things I'm starting to believe and even going back to kind of Shirley is, is Quick Fire success an indicator – for long-term success in the show, yeah, because uh, Carrie is a is a quick fire juggernaut. Um, but I'd I'd be curious to see if if quick fires heading into the final four or the final three, if that's predictive. And I and and certainly in this season, we've come to learn is that it's not predictive because Joe Sasto's still around and Carrie's not. You and I, I think, are both hard bitten realists, but we're both softies at heart, and um, it's always nice to see the family. Uh, so, so now the, after the quick fire, the, the chefs are, 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 are you walk into their their secondary house in Breck. Where they, they're in, where are they? Are they in Brickenridge? Where are they? Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, and they don't. I don't think they even knew. I yeah. don't even know where they are. But um, and then uh, family members are there. Uh, so, so Joe Sasto's father, Adrian's mother, um, Carrie's mother. And Joe Flam's grandmother, who whom he you know kind of grew up at the feet, kind of making uh, on the south side of Chicago the Italian dishes of his childhood that inspired him to cook, and and uh, and then they walk in and dinner is and served by uh, those those kind of iconic family dishes are served by the family members to to the young chefs. Uh, it, it, it's it's a very it's a touching sequence. Uh, any takeaways from there? 
Yeah. What, what was your favorite dish that they presented? Like, which one did you did you see that you're like, oh, I really want some of that? So gumbo is sort of a thing for me. So I, I was very taken aback by the gumbo because it's something I, I it was one of the first kind of complicated dishes I started cooking. And uh, I'm not a huge pasta person. Uh, be, you know, the beef stroganoff sort of a level of intrigue. It is it is a brand of sort of middle American Gentile cooking that I just have never been exposed to. I don't know that I've ever eaten beef, stro- beef stroganoff. And a non- My mom made me beef stroganoff, but it was very much like a hamburger helper with sour cream and, and threw and it I, on like I a think, bed of I rice. Think a, I think an NBA press room is probably the first time I've encountered beef stroganoff in my life. Yeah. Yeah, um, the pig's feet was interesting, and the fact that they eat that, the Sastos ate that for Thanksgiving and Christmas every year. The the pig's feet that was that was fascinating to me. Well, you you braise them, and I, I mean, I think the meat gets pretty tender, and it, it does. I mean, that was sort of the basis of the gravy. Uh, so the challenge is now presented. Uh, you know, use the the account one of the iconic dishes as as the basis for your challenge, and that's going to be the elimination challenge. Joe Sasto, by virtue of winning with his corn uh, flake breaded wacky oysters, gets 30 extra minutes. So now the other chefs only have an hour and a half, whereas uh, Joe has has two hours. And, and what's very interesting is you see – I immediately identified Adrian because she's got gumbo. And the first – my first thought is, watch out. This is a trap. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's barely enough time to do a roux, much less do a gumbo which is so dependent on just having things kind of sit and stew and, and, and just it absorbs the juices. I mean, gumbo needs time. Like when I make a gumbo and again, I'm just a, I'm, a, I'm just a shitty home chef. Like I, I do mine two days in advance and I, I want I want like because I, I want the, the, the shrimp and everything to sit in that in that in that in that in the, uh, in the in the whole substance. And so I'm saying this is this is not going to end well for Adrian. She's going to try to do a gumbo in 90 minutes and it's not going to work. And that is my big fear. Whereas, hey, Joe Flam, he's at home. This guy makes pasta in his sleep. Joe Sasto, pasta in his sleep. Be stroking off a relatively, I think, easy dish to appropriate and elevate. Um, and and I'm worried about Adrian. And that was sort of – I even had made a note, Adrian might be toast. Yeah, and I was feeling the same thing. And I think she was sweating it too. But, man, she came up with an amazing rendition of the gumbo, which – she just pre-cooked everything perfectly um, and didn't go for the traditional gumbo. And that was – if you're going to elevate a dish, uh, when that came out, I was stunned. I was like not only did she pull off a gumbo in basically an hour and a half, but she did it where it was it – was, it was not a gumbo, but it had the theme of a gumbo and it just looked so good and it, she nailed it. It was top chef competition at its best, which is yep. there's a trap here and and it, it seems unavoidable. How do I work myself out of this? So she does her roux as fast as she can. She uses duck fat, which is wonderful because I, actually I keep a tub of duck fat uh, that my butcher sells from some Hudson Valley duck farm. It's like a big white plastic tub of goo and it's my favorite fat to work with. And so she does that roux with duck fat the way her mother does. But then she butter poaches the crab with miso tabasco butter which is just like I mean, amazing flavor profile there she sears the wild shrimp she gets two pounds of the whole foods i mean just rather than just kind of dump everything in a pot she's going to deconstruct the gumbo she does the proteins beautifully butter poaching the crab searing the shrimp she does a like a pipe of rice that she just kind of assembles in the in the in the in the carved out crab leg shell. She does the andouille chips because hey, you know the sausage isn't really going to suck up. It. I mean, the sausage isn't going to perform its function of kind of sitting in there and really you know kind of just infusing the stew. So she decides to do them as a chip, and it's gorgeous. And judging from the the, the, the judges' comments, it's also damn tasty. I think Tom says it's seasoned to perfection. One more grain of salt might have been too much. One less might have been not enough. So so it's beautiful because it's a, it's a triumph of seasoning from a chef who is challenged by seasoning at the beginning of the competition. So we're, we're seeing that trajectory. I am a sucker for Adrian's arc. She's become one of my favorite kind of underdog chefs uh, in recent seasons. I am so pulling for her, uh, though I like everybody in the competition. And, and, and she wins with this. And she is the only non-pasta dish of the four. Uh, what did you think? The other three did very well, right? 
I know it, they all just crushed it, and I think that's the that's the theme of this season is that they're all coming in playing their best game um, in the finals here, and they're just they're just juggernauts. Um, I, I I felt bad for everyone here because I can't imagine there's a worse. I, I, I don't know if there's a worse feeling of going home on Top Chef for an A minus dish, you know, even an A dish. I think these are all A dishes. And the thing was that Adrian, Joe Sasto and, and Joe Flam had a what a plus dishes and Carrie came with an A. Adrian I mean, has an A plus. The Joes have an A and it sounds like Carrie had kind of an A minus. Um, Joe Sasto does these really lovely uh, rotellis, which, you know, you, you know, the little wagon wheel pastas that you get like in the yes. crappy macaroni. So that, that's, but he does an entirely, you know, he does these spirals that are gorgeous with uh, mushrooms and chard and the pig feet gravies kind of rolled up. And it's, it's, oh, I wanted, I wanted to eat that so badly. That one looks so good. His pastas are so just aesthetically gorgeous that like, I, I mean, I'm actually, I'm going to tell him, I'm excited. I made a reservation at his place for uh, a couple weeks from now. And I'm just, I can't wait to dig into his food because it's just, and really just to get a look at it. He just is such a beautiful aesthetic chef. Um, Flam as he says, look, when you're doing basic cooking, there's nothing to hide behind. He basically is just going to take um, his meatballs and rigatoni, his grandmother's meatballs and rigatoni, which have been in the family for generations. He, he, he juices the tomatoes. He makes his concentrated pomodoro paste, and then he grounds up bacon with pork and veal, and he makes an anilotti out of it with a, like, Parmesan crisps, uh, which were his only ding, apparently, uh, some basil, and um, – and give it up to Carrie, who decides, hey, you know, I'm going to make these big raviolo with beef stroganoff in the middle. And she uses buffalo meat to sort of pay homage to her mountain uh, roots and, and, and her father's love of game meat. She does a buffalo sausage with these mushrooms and uh, she does, she herb creme fraiche, uh, caramelizes onions. And she does this, this lovely egg yolk that kind of runs over the whole thing. Uh, and then her one error, which apparently is kind of the basis for sending her home, uh, the, the, in, in no shame, was that she didn't really the, – the stro- I guess the, the whole point of the stroganoff, and you tell me, is it, it's like that kind of cream of beef gravy, that, that sort of yeah. – and, and I, I, she didn't ever reserve that beef kind of runoff that, 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 that she should have combined with the creme fraiche to create that goopy, lovely cream of meat sort of sauce that beef stroganoff is sort of known by. That dish could have won any of the previous 11 episodes for the Elimination Challenge. And that's just – but that's where we are. Um, they're just performing at – the margin of error at this point is is super slim. Um, and you got to give it to Carrie. I mean she has – again, she, we picked two people in Last Chance Kitchen before we selected her in the draft of our of our season here. And episode two, she came in with the – remember the, the, the cheese farm? She won that – episode with a potato and ricotta dumpling butter sauce and hazelnut relish she always brings in this this almost like sweet um kind of desserty ingredient and it works in episode seven with the quick fire with the eggs benedict with nutella and strawberry habanero jam and hollandaise episode nine she did the fan the famous fancy toast with lavender fig and goat cheese with candy pecans and then she won with Chris uh, with the pork green chili poutine. And then episode 11, she won another quick, fa- ch- quick fire challenge with the uh, French onion soup, fancy toast. And I mean, it also had like other lovely little touches like that blueberry and shishito, which was yes. like – she. You know, it's funny because you know, she's kind of a homespun chef, but there's always really just really interesting and challenging kind of flavor intersections. And I just – I have I, immense respect. Uh, just a, a wonderfully a quirky chef uh, who has confidence in her game, and and then that was despite as she said, I didn't come with the pedigree. Uh, it, it, so it was, it, it, she, yeah. Um, and then she goes out on on a strong dish, which which is nice to see. Uh, Finishes with seventy eight points on our uh, fantasy scoring. Joe Sasto was at ninety one. Adrian's at forty six. A huge split from the top two guys. But how's Adrian in the last few weeks? Crushing. Um, she has 42 points in the last three weeks, and Joe Sasto is just ahead of her with 48 points. And, you know, obviously Joe Flam being coming in from Last Chance Kitchen, he only has eight points. So um, she is, over the last few weeks, uh, it's hard to pick a favorite between her and Joe Sasso just based on the last few weeks. Hey, Tom, the chefs did wine bongs back in the in the in the judges' chain yeah. or whatever the holding tank or wherever they go when when the judges schmooze. 
Uh, have you ever, you were in a fraternity. Have you ever done a wine bong? Yeah, I've done a wine bong before. Really? I've also done uh, what's called a uh, slap the bag, which is you take a Franzia bag and you chug from the Franzia, Franzia bag. And then once you're done, it's almost like a wine bong. Once you're done, you slap the bag. It's the most idiotic thing. It's the most fratty thing. There's absolutely no thought, no cleverness. It is just the dumbest thing. Um, and we did it during an event, a party called Tour de Franzia. So we all dressed up as, as cyclists and then just partied uh, with Franzia bags. God, I missed I missed so much of college going to like a study school. I mean, we took acid and took the number one train on at rush hour on a Friday <laughs> once in New York City, but like we never did that. I mean, so yes, yeah. So the Tour de Franzia, and and you know what? We're gonna bring on um, a fraternity brother himself, Joe Sasto. You have a, la- a few last thoughts before we bring him on? No, let, let's go to Joe Sasto. Let's not keep okay. him waiting. So, Joe, uh, uh, where do we find you today? You find me today uh, overlooking uh, Mirror Lake up in Lake Placid, New York City. It's quite nice. Yeah, I saw on your Instagram story that you uh, were bobsledding. Yeah, we did a little bobsledding today. I'm pretty much uh, ready for the Olympics now. My girlfriend and I, we're, we're like Olympic athletes at this point. Hey, listener, it's your favorite Butcher Turn podcast producer, Mays, here to talk to you about Butcher Box. A not so wise man once said, It's not that hard, just chop, chop. Who knew that he was talking about pork chops from Butcher Box? It's not that hard. It's easy to get high quality meat and seafood you can trust delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping, always a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. You get exactly what you need. Premium ingredients for your meals to feed your family. I know how it is. You go to the grocery store, you're stressed. You got a lot of food to get, and then you got to wait in line at the butcher counter. Maybe your butcher is a tall man with an attitude. I don't know. I've never experienced that, but maybe it happened to you. That's why I love ButcherBox. You've always got meat in the freezer or in the fridge. You're ready to cook at any time, and you're not going to find such high quality at such low prices anywhere else. So sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and use code dings at checkout to enjoy your choice of bone-in chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year, plus $20 off. Again, that is butcherbox.com slash dings, and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S. Chop, chop! We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What is... Is bobsledding just like a roller coaster? What is that? Like, is it... Is it is it a rush? Is it scary? like a roller coaster. Uh, I would I would say it's uh it's it's right on the edge there. There's no like track or anything. So I mean, you actually get the sensation that at any moment you could flip over uh, and be riding down the chute on the side. And then the crazy part was on that track, uh, we had done like a half mile track, and it took us about like what 48 seconds. The guys in the Olympics do a mile and a half in about 52 seconds, and it felt like we we're flying. I couldn't imagine going any faster. Like you were just pulling G's, your head, your neck was like tucked down into your chin on every corner. And then the guys that, that are doing that professionally are doing it like twice as fast. It's crazy. So are you, are you good with roller coasters? Cause I know you're not good with basketball. No, it's, roller coasters I can handle. It's, uh, it's the, the sports and balls that aren't really my thing. <laughs> so Kevin, I went to Calmar. Is it called Calmare or Calmare? No, Calamari. That's right. All right. Calamari, it's uh, Joe Sasso is the executive chef at Calamari. I went there at All-Star Weekend. I think it was a Friday night. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go 
pull up on the bar, which is uh, a favorite move of Kevin's is just to go solo to the bar at a nice restaurant. Um, it had a great bar setting. I could watch you like a creep and totally just scout you from, from afar. You had no idea I was showing up. And I sat next to a friend of a friend of the restaurant, Bruno, and he gave me a nice little, um, conversation about Michael Mina. Cause the, cause Calmara is a Michael Mina restaurant. And it was a wonderful meal. I had the, um, Annulati. Uh, I had the pizza that you prepared for me. Um, it was, I, I kept getting food. It was one of those things where I was being very polite. Um, Joe, when you came out and you're like, are you hungry? You want to eat? And I'm like, yeah, I'm totally hungry. But inside I was actually like super full. <laughs> And you come out with the most like decadent pizza I've ever seen, which was, uh, yeah. Can you describe that one for me? Yeah, you definitely had me fooled. Cause if you're anything like me, like when, when I go out to you and my girlfriend and I, we just like, we can't stop. We kind of have a problem where we'll go like one or two dinners a night. If we're like out, out in a town, we're not normally at. So when I asked you, you're hungry and you're like, Oh yeah, totally. I was like, sweet. I can feed this guy as much food as I want right now. Um, but that pizza is a, a really awesome one we do at the restaurant. And there's a carbonara pizza. So um, it's like kind of like a, a white sauce base, kind of like a, I don't know, Mornay or Alfredo sauce, for uh, for lack of a better word. Like roasted garlic, white sauce on the bottom. Uh, gets like thinly shaved potatoes on top, some slices of guanciale, uh, roasted garlic. And then cooked off. And then the, the real like peace fillers, this stance of the whole thing uh, is the egg. So like, you know, everybody does egg on pizza, right? I mean, you, you, you've, uh, you've had the egg on the pizza and I don't know how, yes. how you guys feel about it, but personally, I think it's like one of the biggest, you know, like sins to put on pizzas, like that egg, you crack the egg in the center and then it's like, it just sits in the center. Everybody fights over it. It's no fun. Like one person gets the yolk and then it just kind of makes the whole center of the pizza really soggy. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and it falls off. Like it falls off the slice. Yeah, it's awful. Everybody fights over it. And, like, in theory, it's like, oh, egg on pizza. That sounds awesome. You put an egg on it. It's great. Uh, but so, like, our, my solution at the restaurant was making uh, essentially, like, the carbonara mix on the side. So we take, like, a soft poached 63-degree egg, uh, a mix of, like, a little bit of the warm pasta water, uh, some cheeses, grated cheese, black pepper, and that gets stirred together table side and won't fight into a sauce. And then we spoon that all over the pizza with the black truffles. Oh, see, that's smart. Oh yeah. He was very much accounting for chemistry and the, and the actual person, he came out to the bar and made this thing and whipped up this 63 degree egg for me. It was amazing. Um, and that was after two pasta dishes and it was uh, the pumpkin ravioli with sea urchin. I mean, Kevin, come on, think about it. He made basically an alf, um, like an Alfredo sauce pizza with an egg on it after a shrimp agnolati with uh, a pumpkin ravioli. And it was, it was so delicious, so rich. I thought I was going to pass out there at the bar, which is a great sign of a, of a wonderful meal. Yeah, actually, Joe, I will, I will be in the night of Tuesday, March 6th uh, with my partner and uh, a couple of people. So I'm very excited. I, the minute I was like, yeah, I got I to gotta make my reservation. Um, hey, let me ask you a question. I'm excited too. One of the interesting things is, you know, thinking about Michael Mina is there's so many different ways a young chef can go, right? Like, like, do you want to be a guy like Michael who has like, Hey, I've got like 30 restaurants to my name. Like, yep. If the four seasons is opening in Dubai, that's going to be my place. Or, I mean, you can do it the way Ludo does it. You can, I mean, hell, you can do it with the way Craig Thornton does it, which is, Hey, I'm going to cook for 40 people a weekend in my house and to hell with being a restaurateur because who needs that bullshit in my life? Like, how, do you know yet? Like, <laughs> like, do you know, like, do you know yet where you want to, like, what, what is the 49 year old Joe Sasto's sort of bio page look like? I mean, do you have aspirations or, Hey, I just want to be as good a cook right now or chef right now as I can. And Hey, let the chips fall where they may. Like, do you know where you're doing, like how you're going to pursue that yet? No, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely something I've, I've thought a lot about at this point. And now it's just a matter of, uh, you know, the cards falling into the right place. Um, I would say definitely not the Michael Lena route. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a big corporation like that and doing, uh, you know, a new restaurant and every hotel that opens. And, you know, there's something to be said about, uh, being that, that, um, smart of a businessman to be able to pull that off. 
Like that is no easy feat to um, operate and manage and constantly be opening a new restaurant, a new concept. Um, and that takes a whole separate set of skills. Uh, but personally, myself, is I'm, I'm much more find uh, happiness. And I think my passion lying is something more like along the lines of what, what Ludo did. And uh, for opening something, whether it be in a strip mall or somewhere in L.A., and uh, focusing in on one smaller restaurant, um, expanding into maybe a separate concept next door, um, a separate concept in the back, um, kind of all grouping them together um, with a similar theme and idea. All of it's still kind of uh, in the works right now, but I very much have a, a clear idea of what, what I want it to be and what I want it to become. Kevin, I don't think you know this, but uh, Joe, when we sat down and talked the other night, he revealed that he had never really had any intentions of being on Top Chef. He had actually like was unaware of the invites and was kind of like, oh, like maybe I'll do this. Whereas you had that that contrast to Chris, who's been like his whole life has been trying to get on to Top Chef. He tried five times. And Joe, it wasn't like something he was dead set on. Uh, Joe, can you get, elaborate a little bit more on your road to getting onto Top Chef there? Yeah, I mean, it was the same kind of thing where I was in San Francisco and, you know, a big chunk of my career was spent at, at Quince. It was like three Michelin starred, like shooting for the gold, just like the crazy, um, you know, high intensity, high pressure situations working in one of those, like the most stressful kitchen you can imagine. And uh, it was kind of like ingrained in me, you know, the, the idea of like a television personality chef and shows like that were more about the drama and less about the cooking. Um, and since I'd never really even seen, seen the show, I, that was the mindset that I had little did I know that it was like, you know, quite the opposite actually, where it was very much about the cooking, uh, very little bit about the drama. We had very little to any drama. I think you guys have been watching, you know, the whole season, there was a, you know, a couple of those, those moments, uh, that peaked at the judges table. But, uh, for the most part, I mean, it was really, really about the cooking and really about the competition and the chefs and the, and the incredible amount of talent we had there. So going into the show, I had no idea what to expect. It was something I didn't really have my sights set on, but you know, everything, I'm one of those people that believe that everything happens for a reason. And, uh, between the job offer to move down to, to LA and start this new project and then the opportunity to go on top chefs. Uh, my girlfriend was the one that she just kind of like pushed me in that direction was like, you know, don't be a dummy. You have the chance to go do the show. Like, why would you not want to go do this? And then, you know, next thing I knew I'm flying to Denver. That's crazy. And, and, and you are, I mean, I think people realize that you were truly like sequestered for three months. I mean, you are pretty much cut off from civilization when you're on that show. I don't think, yeah, I don't think people realize it when they like, I, I like meet people now and, you know, see people and huge fans of the show. I don't think they realize like how how serious of a competition they they make this and they take this. Yeah, your your girlfriend works at your restaurant there, so that must have been pretty hard to like live basically twenty four seven with your girlfriend at the restaurant and then just cut it off completely and just go off to Denver. Yeah, well, we had a plan for that because we had moved down to L.A. We had been living in L.A. for about five days uh, before I left for Denver, which was crazy. So she just moved to this brand new city. Um, didn't necessarily like have a whole bunch of friends or anything, but the whole idea was that we knew we wanted to get like adopt a, a pet. So we got a kitten like the, the very first day we moved down there. Next day we moved down there. So she was able to take care of the kitten the whole time while I was gone. And that was kind of, like the replacement for me. Um, that took like all her attention and love and energy, which is great. It was like a slight distraction, I suppose for her, which was, uh, in the best way possible. How subjective do you think judging food is? I, I mean, it, it just dawns on me. I mean, food is just one of those things. I mean, I think we know what an objectively good dish looks like and what an objectively, like, terrible dish is. But I, I wonder if, like, you know, one thing I always think about when the judges are going around tasting eight things is, are the middle six things, when you take away kind of the, 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 the top dish and the bottom dish, are they just all – do we place too much credence in that? that like, it is – how, to what extent is it subjective and to what extent is it objective? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I think it really depends on what you're judging. I mean, they do a really good job at, at trying to set the criteria. And then we, as, as the competitors and chefs, became very good at asking the right questions and being like, so, you know, trying to dial into exactly what they're looking for um, when it came to judging, whether it be like, 
what exactly the challenge was, what exactly they would be judging us on, which helped us, you know, cook to a much more subjective or uh, objective rather uh, kind of judge. But I still like that. Uh, as soon as you said subjective, the first thing I thought of was when uh, Chef Kinch said that uh, my Canadian was pedestrian. And I still like. Which, I can't by the way, get over I, that I, I imagine for someone like you is just like the worst fucking insult you can possibly get. <laughs> the worst. The worst. worst. Pedestrian. I mean, oh, it's I, always- I, I still like that's something I feel like will always like. I just I like to believe that he was he couldn't think of the right word, and pedestrian was not uh, what he was looking for. But when he said it, I was like. Because I was, too, I, I thought that was gonna be my first quick fire win, to be honest. <laughs> and then he gets fucking gutted. <laughs> and then here I am on the bottom cooking for elimination. Did you? Uh, sorry, go ahead, Kevin. Uh, did you? Uh, I mean, congratulations on your first quick fire, first and foremost. I mean, congratulations. It took you. It took you this long. What's the deal? You, fe- yeah. you felt like. You're not a quick fire guy. The first episode that we had a Top Chef on, it was Tyler, and he's like, "Fuck quick fires! I hate quick fires. The worst." Um, <laughs> and that was actually prophetic because he was eliminated uh, pretty quickly right after he said that. But um, do you feel like you just didn't get a fair shake on quick fires, or you're not? That's not your best thing, and you're more of an elimination challenge. I'm thinking of LeBron James who just coasts for the regular season and then just pours it on in the playoffs, and he's a real playoff performer. Um, well, unfortunately, I don't get that analogy at all. I know LeBron I'm just saying you live for the elimination challenges, the real main event, rather than the quick fire. Um, you know, I like to think of myself as one of those cooks or chefs that like thinks really fast on their feet, that loves like that quick fire kind of challenge. Like the whole idea, like when I did Chopped, like I thought that was like a blast because it was pretty much like three rounds of quick fires, but then quick fires here, I had a really hard time dealing with whatever the, um, the challenge was. And it wasn't necessarily cooking quickly and thinking quickly. It was like the, whatever it was that they gave us that I just couldn't wrap my head around in that short amount of time, like deconstruct and recreate a Denver omelet. I was like, uh, cause even like going into it, I knew there would be a Denver omelet challenge at some point. And there was something always on my mind, but I just never came up with a, I don't know, a better version of a Denver omelet, I guess. I'm going to stop you there because I want to ask, I forgot about this. Why did everyone forget how to make an omelet that episode? Oh my God. That was the most painful thing to watch those three. <laughs> like... And I think, you know what it was? It's because it they gave them like 15 or 20 mil- minutes to make an omelet. So I think that alone was like part of the like mental mind fuck that like eliminate like quick fire elimination because you don't need that much time. Right. So, so that like threw them all off. They all start like chopping up vegetables and coming up with like four or five other components they could put with their French omelet. And like at the end of the day, they just completely forgot what the challenge was. Just make a simple, perfect French omelet. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, the uh, let's get into this past episode and just the the Top Chef stuff this this last few weeks. Adrian, uh, you said it. Adrian's coming for me. Kevin has a thing for Adrian. I feel like Adrian might be your long lost daughter, Kevin, just by how effusive you are when you talk about her. Uh, Adrian, (laughs) at this point, you can't. Because Joe, like, I just, I like, like, I I think she showed up lacking a certain degree of confidence and, you know, had this seasoning issue. And I I love, as a writer, I'm looking for the narrative. And she seems like somebody who's just a decidedly, like, different chef. Uh, in in the final three weeks than she was at the very beginning of the season. And I just like a good story about someone kind of finding themselves in the kitchen. And it's not that you haven't or Flam hasn't or anybody else, but I just think that Adrian is sort of like, like she bought into her skills at a certain point and kind of blossomed. And as, as the sports writer kind of looking for the story, like that to me is that's why I'm kind of in, I, I'm, I'm in, I, have, I have a little uh, chef crush on Adrian. Yeah. I mean, Adrian, I, what, what I saw, Adrian, I think her and I bonded in the sense that we both came into this competition with the same, uh, I don't want to say ish, the same like difficulties. 
um, where we both had worked. We both had really like outstanding pedigrees and worked for some really incredible chefs, but neither one of us had really at the, that point in their career been like the executive chef of a restaurant, like, or been like the one making the final calls about the food or just really cooking food. That was ours. We were like able to take an idea that one of the other chefs or someone we were working for gave us and create the best possible version of that. And we were both like crushing it in, in that respect. And then we're getting to the show and no one giving you that idea to come up with and just saying, okay, cook your version of this, cook your, your idea. And I think we both kind of um, stumbled a bit, never having been in that situation before. And it took us both a while to, to realize like what mattered to us when it came to food, what did we want to be when we, when we put food on the plate, like how did we best express our voice? And I think as we each figured that out, um, we each progressively got better and better and better. Are Rocky Mountain oysters good? They're like sweetbreads. If anyone yeah. like, they're almost identical to sweetbreads. So like, if you don't think of them as like bull's testicles, um, and more like you know a sweetbread, which uh, in itself doesn't isn't really even that appetizing, um, but much more familiar, I think, to everyone. Uh, they're they're not bad. Yeah, you did the cornflake Rocky Mountain oyster, uh, which was really impressive also because you had the added pressure of Joe Flam doing the same exact dish. Uh, did you peek over your shoulder at Joe Flam at any point being like, okay, he's, he's doing it and it's really, really good. I'm screwed. Um, well, the thing was, and especially in that situation, we didn't get the chance to really try each other's food. Um, just, you know, sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't after each of the challenges. Um, and that was one of the ones where I didn't get to try one else's food. I just got to hear what they made. And I was really nervous. I was like, oh, shit. Like, Adrian's idea sounded awesome. Like, oh, fuck. How did Joe end up with the same idea as me again for, like, the eighth time this season? <laughs> uh, did you – uh, uh, I was like, oh, that was smarter. Carrie to turn it into a pate. Like, well, man, once again, Carrie with the, the dark horse crazy idea. Do you think we make too much – it's a theme I've sort of – latched on to a little bit and, and it's one of the things i love about the show is that everybody comes from different backgrounds and is formed by different upbringings and traditions culturally aesthetically and otherwise you know this the idea of kind of uh, technical chefs with a certain degree of pedigree and kind of the, the homespun i don't want to say homespun but but uh you know chefs who might cook more intuitively and I, by the way i think the same is true for novelists i think the same is true for basketball players who um, I have no interest of, of yours, obviously, but like, you know, is that, is that a distinction in the kitchen I, I, that as an, as an analyst, one might make too much of? Um, I would definitely think it's something people can easily uh, overweigh and place too much value on the difference and that there may be some, um, you know, contrast or a big degree of separation. But what I've realized from this show is that like the comp this competition in particular really levels that entire playing field. Like it doesn't matter what your pedigree is or what, you know, who you worked for or who you didn't work for. Um, you know, the way this is all designed really does a, a great job at, at really leveling that playing field every single week, no matter who won or who lost the week before. Was Carrie, um, was the respect gained throughout the season? Did you have super respect for her in the beginning? And she just confirmed that. It seemed like they played it up. Bravo did the editing team played it up that you like downplaying her, throwing her shade throughout the season. Like fucking fancy toast. What's going on here? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I have respect for Carrie the whole time. I mean, everybody there that was on the show, they definitely played, played that aspect of it up. But at the same time, fucking fancy toast, three different, I think she won like $25,000 off the toast. So, I mean, and then, but then you look at it, it's like when you're, when you're doing something just like toast, I mean, it has to be really fucking good. Like in, um, in the saloon, when we were doing one of those final challenges, that was like another time where Joe plan was the one who got to, he got to try the last bite of all the food. He tried mine. And he was like, Oh shit, that's great. And then that's when I like leaned over to him. And I was like, she can't win again with like a tartine. <laughs> and then he took the last bite of hers and he, they didn't show it. He leaned back over to me and he's like, sorry, dude, you lost. That's really good. 
So like, even so something to be said about making toast and being able to do it that well, that many different ways. I mean, you know, she's, she had, she has her own like set of talent. She's really, really incredible. You know, it's, it's something that definitely played up with the shade being thrown. Uh, but you know, over the course of the whole season, I gained, I gained a ton of respect for her. Kevin, the uh, saloon episode. You remember that Joe Flam? We discussed it on the on the on the show that Joe Flam got the advantage of being able to steal an ingredient from the rest of the chefs. And I asked Sasto, I was like, "Did do you think it was on purpose that he stole the carrot from from Joe?" And Sasto, what was your answer? I was like, "Absolutely." I think at one point he even told me, "He's like, there's no way I'm letting get Joe have carrots again because he saw one yes. of the carrots last." I was actually planning on doing a whole thing with carrots and uh, sarsaparilla. So then it says like exactly what I did when I saw the fish. I was like, well, I don't want to have to try to cook chicken or pork chop in the middle of the street. Uh, last thing I want to do is let Adrian get fish because I know how you know, confident and successful she's become with cooking fish. So there's definitely strategy involved in everything. There's strategy involved in picking the team's uh, you know, who you put with who that was like when Carrie had the, the Super Bowl challenge, was it the, the tailgating challenge? Yep. And she like purposely put Adrian and I together because we were the one that had been on the bottom the past two or three weeks. You know, there's, there's strategy and everything that's done in this whole show to say there's not it <laughs> turning a blind eye. Joe carrots are having a moment. Like I've just been, and I don't know if like I've been, first of all, I've been having a lot of fun this winter with those tricolor, carrots you see at like the hollywood farmer's market on sunday and I, I i've been doing it with like a i like roast the shit out of them with like a like this like tahini sauce that i i got from which was it the jelena cookbook i forget which one but like like radishes are also having a moment like what what's having a moment right now among because you know, it's always something right like we went through fava beans a couple of years ago i mean every year it seems like there's something i i just i see on a menu that I hadn't seen 10 times in the previous 10 years. And it's like, I can't go through Los Angeles as just a casual eater now without seeing them. Like what, what else is having a moment right now? Oh man. Uh, cauliflower's having a moment. Everybody that's like the, you know, the new vegetarian, uh, meat, uh, chicory, like radicchios and bitter greens. People mm-hmm. used to like look, turn their nose up at and they're like, Oh, they're awful. They're bitter. Nobody wants to eat these. Now that's like you'll often find that's the only salad on a menu. And it's like people are – once you treat them properly, it's – If you, you char know, really, them, they're delicious. They're delicious. They're so good with just like a squeeze of lemon. Like I love it. So, I mean, it, they're like, you know, it's cool to see what the next and new and like what people are, are getting into. But, I mean, it's – to me, I just love that people are getting into the like vegetables and then like elevating the humble vegetable like the radish or the carrot. You know, it's something that people easily just – overlook when they're shopping in the grocery store but now it's like you can create entire dishes just based around that one vegetable it's like one of my favorite ways of cooking do you see a real discernible difference between uh, like san francisco food scene and los angeles food scene i feel like for years much was made of it san francisco sort of was the darling and you know the michelin people would ignore los angeles and not even regard it as a culinary city a backwater um, I mean, I never put much stock in it. And I think these days it's, but I, I was curious, like as a chef, is, is there anything, are there discernible differences between these two cities, food scenes or any two fit cities, food scenes for that matter? Here's how I see it. I mean, even I would say what, eight, five, five or eight years ago, uh, when I had been like, you know, really cooking in San Francisco is the kind of thing where I, I was so anti LA. I had been down there a handful of times and just that I didn't like the restaurants down there. I didn't think there was like any good food going on. I couldn't stand the traffic, probably most importantly. Um, and it was just always the kind of person that was like, oh, I hate L.A., Northern, North Cal for life kind of thing. And then slowly over time, I mean, even in the past five years, it's taken a complete turn 180 where L.A. has turned into one of those cities that, is people are looking for chef-driven restaurants now. People are respecting uh, food and the ingredient, really like not okay with just Cheesecake Factory and P.F. Chang. They want all the new and creative and innovative food. And the thing about LA is that it's so big. There's so many untapped pockets and so many pockets of great food and different things that you could find. And um, San Francisco, on the other hand, now it's become the city that is not very big. So all these restaurants are constantly opening, but they're each 
have their moment for, you know, a week. And if they don't do something incredible or amazing in that one week, then a new restaurant opens and nobody remembers them. Everybody moves on and they're always looking for the next and the new. So all of that and coming down to LA and seeing all the, you know, I could still get all the wonderful produce and everything that I found in the Bay area had really opened my eyes and shifted on where I wanted to be cooking and, um, you know, continuing my career. Joe, I wanted to ask you, I asked you in person, but, uh, we got to just reiterate, um, the basketball thing. (laughs) So that wasn't a lie. That wasn't you playing it up. Uh, You legit are grossed out by basketball or any sport that requires a, uh, passing of, of balls because it's just gross. Um, so are you a germaphobe or is this just uh, you had a bad experience as a kid? Or you had a traumatic basketball, germy basketball as a kid. Where, where does that come from? Um, well, you know, I would definitely say sports in general as a kid were pretty traumatic. I think for me, um, it was I, like growing up, I was definitely like that overweight, like choking fat kid in the group that were friends with all the athletes and all the like varsity players all through like high school and middle school and but would never get to play on the teams i would sometimes get picked and sometimes not get picked and many many hours and after school time was spent just watching sports with them and pretending that i was interested when in reality i couldn't stand it didn't want to watch it had no interest in it whatsoever and then the whole thing with the germs and the and the basketball is not necessarily the germs it's just i hate the feeling your hands get after you touch a basketball, even if it's just like one dribble, you just, it feels filthy. Like you don't want like, you're just like, Oh, get, get away from me. I need to go watch the hands now. I feel like I have no problem riding the New York city subway, but touching a basketball seems way worse. Uh, we, we, we will, I, I will, I will bring no basketballs, uh, when I, when I, when I come to Calmare. Uh, <laughs> is, uh, one last question about Calmare. Uh, you know, it, it, I mean, it's, 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 you guys are doing great. Um, you know, the Beverly Center has always been a little bit of a, of a Bermuda Triangle, I think, for restaurants. Like, it's, I, I think it's a really, it's, 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 I would call it a gamble, but it, it's definitely, I think there's an element of risk into saying, hey, we're going to do this really refined cooking uh, in, in the Beverly Center, which for those listeners who don't live in Los Angeles, like, it's kind of the big mall. Like, it's the mall in Clueless, where Alicia Silverstone is hanging out with her friends, right? Like, that, that is, like it's the Beverly Center, and it's it's a place where I think historically probably had like an Orange Julius or something. Like I mean, it's it's a it's a mall, but you guys are bringing like this I mean, this really you know kind of elevated refined cooking to a place that normally is is sort of a a, a graveyard for it. I mean, how how like how's that going? Well, first of all, I I walked there and walked around in circles for about twenty minutes trying to find the damn restaurant. So uh, yes, there is a little bit of a, a mall feel to that where I didn't know where I was going. Yeah, so I mean, we definitely hit all those struggles. Like I think you you put it perfectly. It's it's you know the Beverly Center. Everybody has historically viewed it as a mall with mall food, and move, you know, myself not being an LA native and no knowing nothing really about LA when moving there. I didn't realize that the Beverly Center had that connotation. So I came into it with a completely clean slate about things. And what I really like about what we've, we've done with the restaurant is that it's not necessarily in the mall. It's below the Beverly Center uh, on the ground floor right there. So we have a separate entrance from the street, a separate entrance for valet. Uh, and you could get to it without actually having to walk through the mall like you're walking to a restaurant in the mall which kind of um, helps our cause for that matter. And just, you know, it's the kind of thing where people are like, oh, I don't want to go to the Beverly Center. Well, you don't really have to. You could go to the restaurant and completely avoid the Beverly Center altogether. But at the moment, we're the first restaurant that's opened up. There's still tons of construction going on right now, which is making it, I would say, incredibly difficult to find, like you said, um, just between closed sidewalks and closed escalators and but, you know, what they're doing and is pretty incredible is that the Beverly Center is looking to change their that whole identity that they have as a mall and really bringing in all these chef-driven restaurants, bringing in all these really interesting concepts, doing all kind of one standalone places um, that will all be opened up within the next year. And the idea is that we're all going to create synergy off of each other and people will be wanting to come to the mall as a dining destination 
and not necessarily just because it's the mall or the Beverly Center. Right. Last question from me, because uh, I, I never get a really good chef on the phone without asking for a hint. Uh, so inspired by Adrian, I, I am going to try to, I want to, I have a steam oven. This was a, a local chef in, when I renovated my kitchen, inspired me to get a, a steam oven that I can do a lot of cool things. And as much as I like fish, which is like a big thing for me. Like, like a house, like an electronic, like steamer oven. Like a, com- like a combination, like a Bosch combination oven that like I, I put in the little pitcher of water in the chamber and it creates the steam. And I've done already like beautiful things with it. Like, uh, in terms of uh, you know chicken and fish, I made a a beautiful kind of a muk, like a Cambodian style like halibut with 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 wrapped in a banana leaf. It's like I've been able to use steam in a way that I wouldn't otherwise as an idiot home chef. And so this is the one of the coolest the coolest thing in my life is that I own a steam oven. So tonight I want no idea they make for the 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 home cook. Yeah, no, they 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 do. They're suckers like me who will buy this stuff now for their homes with the ambition of, <laughs> of, of being a passable chef um, or home cook, really. So if I'm butter poaching tonight in that steam oven, I'm going to go to my favorite seafood place in Glendale and I'm going to buy some halibut and I want to butter poach it and to perfection and get that silkiness that you get when you order like a butter poached piece of seafood or shrimp or fish. W- w- what is the trick? What, what do I need to be mindful of? Do you well? I'm assuming you don't. You have not yet upgraded um, your kitchen to have a, a cryovac machine to cook sous vide. Do you? Uh, give me some time on the sous vide. Our, our, our comment: We have a friend uh, in our basketball writing world who's obsessed with his sous vide and thinks that this is the greatest advent since like food itself. Um, but I'm not there. <laughs> but this, I think, it functions. The, the steam oven functions as my sous vide, basically. Yeah. No, it, it's very similar. Um, for butter poaching, I mean, to be honest, I don't think you would need the steamer. I think your bit, your best bet is to get like a wide, uh, maybe like three inch, four inch pan. I got one. Pot. I got a nice um, one. A Kathleen uh, stainless steel. Yeah. Yeah. Make, make like a super flavorable Bermonte. So I take like some cream, a little white wine, like garlic herbs, like reduce it down by half. So it becomes almost like six. Then maybe take like four pounds of butter, dice it up, and slowly whisk it in, emulsify it, and you'll like have this like super thick, luscious like butter sauce. And then just keep that on low temperature to the point where you could like barely keep your finger in it. And then slide your fish right into there and let it hang out for like five, eight, ten minutes, depending on, on how big the pieces are. All right, this is good. This is not this I can do. Um, and how do I know if the sauce is too hot or too not hot enough? If it's too hot, it'll break, and then you'll be in trouble, and you'll have just wasted like four or five pounds of butter. Oh my god! So that's the key is to not get not to get it too hot, um, but just uh, God, I would say not simmering at all. Probably around like 180 degrees would be the ideal temperature. Right. So I'm not even getting it to that boiling point. No, 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 not getting it to the boil. Like you could bring the liquid before you start adding to the butter so I could simmer and then lower the heat and slowly start whisking in your butter little by little. And if you notice it's cooling down, turn your heat up a little more. And then like if it's getting too hot, but that's I, when you keep adding more cold butter, just whisking it in the whole time. Oh, nice. It's easier than you. Yeah. Listeners, you get top chef analysis and you get cooking tips. All in one. Yes. Hey, um, Joe, we've got to – I feel like we've got to watch a finals game with Joe, Kevin. A basketball game? Like, Yeah, we've got to watch a basketball game with Joe and just record that conversation. Oh, man. That would be <laughs> – It would be amazing. Um, Joe, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, I had such a great meal. Actually, the pistachio gelato dessert that you, that you prepared – probably my favorite thing of the night um and it was a great capper uh so the whole experience at calmara was amazing uh and it's an open kitchen kevin you're gonna enjoy that so you can totally critique joe from afar and he won't even know um so it was a great <laughs> a great meal um great ambiance and uh you're gonna really like it kevin um but we're really liking your run so far on top chef and we're rooting for you thank you so much guys fingers crossed huh Hey, thanks for taking the time and Lake Placid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was fun.
it's a nice, nice, nice little break of my day. Never, uh, never got to do a podcast before. So that was, that was a sports, uh, a podcast hosted by sports reporters. How about that? Yeah, the first time for everything. Probably my first and last uh, podcast. <laughs> I'll end up doing with sports unless I talk to you guys again. <laughs> yes, we're gonna definitely have you on again for sure. See you in a couple weeks, Joe. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Joe. This is Pack Your Knives. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.